Alright, three, two, one. Never fought murder. Smelt like honeysuckle. And welcome everyone to the 70th episode of First Days with Mori, all about film noirs, noir films, noir, and femme fatales. I'm your host, Dean Taylor. Join me tonight as my wonderful co-host, Devin Kane, and we have two brand new guests tonight. Well, one of them has been on the channel before, the other one is brand new. I'm sure you guys could probably give a better introduction than I ever could, so please, introduce yourselves. Hi everybody, I am Jamara Ford. I am co-owner and operator of Orange Hat Film Productions, fellow film student, graduate, film nerd, extraordinaire. Um, happy to be on here with you guys. Awesome. Happy to have you. And who is this strange gentleman named Daryl? Uh, yeah. Hey guys, I'm Daryl. I'm cinematographer over at Orange Hat. I uh, do a lot of my uh, productions with Jamara, hand in hand, trying to make some indie films in Ontario. And uh, yeah, we uh, we We're... love our our films and love talking films. So always happy to come back. And specifically, yeah. I love noirs. So. Down. Yeah, is always. it just me or do I hear some beeping in the background? I mean, my cat is currently meowing and decided to just start doing that. Uh, well, the cat's fine. Head, cat but... will be the special guest, but I'm just wondering. I don't hear anything. Uh, Jamara, your headphones were kind of kind of crazy. I hear what they're saying now. Do you want to try your other set just to be safe? Uh, yeah. Give me a second. Yeah. No worries. Uh, while that's happening, what is a film noir? A uh, miserable pile of secrets. No, it's uh, uh, it kind of started in the 40s, arguably with the Maltese Falcon, but I'd argue it kind of really started and honed in on the tropes in 1944 with Double Indemnity. It was a result of you know post-World War II anxiety and the loneliness a lot of people were feeling and the corruption that the government was kind of spreading around the time. There's lots of themes of, you know, valuing money above all else, acting, doing horrible acts of crime out of selfish love or selfish desire. And this genre, fornicated throughout the years, kind of died out in the 60s when people were starting to get sick of the genre and made a huge comeback in the 70s with films like Chinatown. Huge, huge comeback to the neo-noir genre that we see now, not as much as we used to, but every now and again we get films like Under the Silver Lake or um trying to think of another very recent example here. Too Old to uh, Die Brick. Young. Yeah, Brick. That's another good one. Too Old to Die Young, Drive. Any of those could be concerned a noir. So it's really her genre to pinpoint for that reason because there's so many different themes. There's so many films where it's like, well, it's kind of a noir, but it kind of isn't. But it's kind of a loose genre tied to... It, Basically, these personal stories of crime and vengeance is the best way to put it, with mm -hmm. a heavy emphasis on style along with the substance. Well, it's very interesting how it got like its name, because like, you wonder why are these American crime films from the 40s called noir, when uh, that's you know French for black. And it's because it was a French essayist who uh, coined the term. Um, so what happened uh, in World War II... Uh, is that, uh, you know, these films were being made while the war was still happening, and there was, like, an embargo of, of American films going to Europe where they couldn't uh, get them for a while. So after the war had ended, suddenly that embargo was lifted. And then, um, 
these uh, French essayists were able to see all these crime films that were being made in America for the years uh, that the war was going on. And they started to notice that there was a drastic change of tone uh, in these films than what they had seen before. Like there was much lighthearted, hard, uh, more relatively like lighthearted kind of toned films in like the 30s with um, Scarface kind of being these very one dimensional look at criminals where uh, these films that were coming out now were a lot more pessimistic and fatalistic and there's just a dramatic tone shift. And so they coined the term film noir to uh, kind of put a, a name to it. And it was also kind of interesting. Um, the, the way they observed is that um, a lot of the filmmakers uh, that became most notable for creating film noir were um, filmmakers who came from Germany to America to escape the, uh, you know, fascist regime that was rising there. And there was almost like a hybrid of two German styles of film. There was Italian neorealism, which was very, you know, bare bones, shot in real locations, shot with non-actors kind of filmmaking that really looked at more so the reality of things that was happening at the time. And then German expressionism, which is almost the complete opposite, where it's these very abstract, angular, kind of expressive uh films and noir kind of exists in this lurid middle ground between those two where the uh kind of downtrodden realism of the world that they're in and that's in turmoil and the kind of inner turmoil that occurs because of that um so i think that's what film noir is in a nutshell oh totally and like typical staples like it, it's littered with um very i don't know iconography of the time but it kind of did set this uh, standard where, you know, they, they kind of were the ones pushing the femme fatale archetype and um, really kind of playing with, like, mm. levels and characters. Like, there was there was this theme throughout of, like, descent and, like, the, like the layers of the underworld and how oh, yeah. you could take somebody who oftentimes wasn't even in control of these events and they got pushed down this dark path. And it was, uh, like... It was, you know, it was a great comment on of the time, like everything, like you said, getting soured that, you know, the dark world war aesthetic seeping in. And uh, yeah, it really just bled out on the screen. Um, and yeah, very iconic ways. I, I do like it's great to uh, to hear you say that because really German expressionism and uh, Italian neorealism is, you know, at two of my favorite genres that exist so of course oh yeah um, and, and they're both proto <laughs> they're, they're both like and, and they both kind of predecess these films but these are like the perfect hybrid of those two kind of genres and you know it's interesting that we're we're focusing on like the femme fatale kind of archetype with these three films where this is a character one could argue is almost entirely birthed out of male anxiety um yes because you know the, the, sure. the world view is changing after the war you know women were uh getting jobs and getting educated when the men were gone fighting and so their idea of what these roles are was shifting and they kind of projected that anxiety onto them like oh all the women are out to get us or some shit but it is interesting to kind of see how that you know plays out on screen and and how it's changed what over it's... the years absolutely yeah. And uh, yeah. I guess the only other thing to touch on, sorry if you did just mention this earlier, but the Hayes Code was was a big influence yeah. on how oh, yeah. this all kind of got its uh, its feeling. Like there was, you know, Hollywood implemented their own code on themselves that was basically, you know, I, I forget specifically what it was for, if it was to meet like the church or certain 
government well, standards of some kind. I forget this. It was government yeah. standards, essentially. Yeah. Like it, the government it, it was government standards, and also the church had a lot of influence. They were trying to censor and ban these films. Yeah. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll come up with our own rules to play by them so we can make what we want to make still um, without being censored or boycotted. And because man, we need to make money. There were some censorships. No smoking, no references to sex, no references to violence, uh, no drinking, no drug use, no I, I think there was certain clothing limitations too. Like you couldn't like you can't show like any nipples, period, or something along those lines. And these films basically were a giant middle finger to the Hayes Code. Like I watching Double Indemnity, I could not believe a lot of the stuff they got away with. <laughs> And I joke with my mom where the first time you see, I we're not talking about fully yet, but the first time you see Barbara Stanwyck, we were just like, oh my god, that is like frisky, slutty shit at the time, just seeing those legs. My god. <laughs> oh my god, a whole ankle. Oh god. Those, oh, let alone the You see the toes. Adultery. Double indemnity, more like double entendre, eh? Oh, hey. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of double indemnity. Yes. I, I guess we might as well delve into it at this point. Devin, would you yeah. like to introduce? Oh. Yeah, the, the the film that we're all talking about. By the way, all of us are film nerds. We all went to film school, and this was like uh, anybody that took the film noir class. This was like likely the first one uh, that we talked about, just because it kind of encapsulates all the tropes that film noir became uh, known for. So this is all of us just kind of racking our brains for the film education we had and nerding out. So uh, Double Indemnity uh, is a Paramount picture uh, starring Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and also Edward G. Robinson um, directed by the Billy Wilder um, who is two out of three titles on this uh, roster tonight. He's that much of an influential figure in the film noir world. But um, essentially the plot is a Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and moita that arouses in the suspicion of his colleague an insurance investigator so yeah this is a film that more or less kind of encapsulates all the uh, noir tropes where this insurance investigator comes in um, and he meets this woman and they fall in love and they plot against to kill her husband essentially and the way this plot kind of unfolds just is really by the book what a noir has become known for. And something I was alluding to with the double entendre, uh, the way they were getting around Hayes Code limitations to you know, evoke these uh, themes and underlying sexual tension is they have some really sharp dialogue, which may not be like realistic, quote unquote, but it really says a lot without saying much. Yeah, it's and, so much uh, fun to listen to, too. It's, it's very clever writing. Yeah, the so and, uh, early it's that... great. Yeah, uh, how oh, fast yeah. was I going, officer? Uh, suppose I give you a ticket. Suppose you let me off of a warning. Suppose I cry on your husband. Suppose I cry on your shoulder. Suppose you cry on my husband's shoulder. That kills it. <laughs> Just lots of oh. entertained dialogue, and it's so fast. Like watching mm -hmm. this movie again, I was like, wow, people say so much dialogue so fast that. I was kind of nervous to recommend it because I'm like, they just go by dialogue so quick. Like, are we going <laughs> to, no offense, but are we going to be able to pick up on all of it? I had to 
rewind a couple scenes because I was just like, oh, what the fuck? Are, what the fuck did yeah, they no, say? It, like, wow. Every, every like, 10 seconds in, like, a dialogue exchange, I was, like, pausing for, like, this the, the, the caption and getting a screen grab because yeah. that, that was a good line. <laughs> but that's a product of its time thing, for sure. And he, Belly Wilder gets better with that in Sunset Boulevard where the dialogue definitely has more time to sink in, but... I think that was just a movement around that time in cinema that changed that. And another nervous thing I'm always worried about with recommending all of these old movies is, it, you know, like, sure, we can appreciate it for the time, and sure, we can appreciate it as a genre piece, but is it, like, entertaining outside of that? Are we going to enjoy it outside of that regard? I, but I gotta say, like, 65 years later, this film is incredibly well-paced. It's very entertaining, yeah. and, like, it's almost two hours long, and I gotta say it doesn't feel like it at all and which is incredible because it's mostly just people like a few people talking in rooms without without much else going on but like you said Devin, the dialogue is so entertaining and the characters are a little yeah. bit one note but they're still like very interesting and entertaining and you're still excited to see like where the story mm -hmm. goes next and yeah. I, I love this set of films uh because all of them are under two hours um <laughs> And I, Very refreshing. I, I've just been appreciating that brisk runtime uh, more so, uh, more and more with each one of these episodes we do because we watch three movies each week, and it's a it's a bit of a time investment to really get into these things. Yeah. And because uh, when I watch a film to study it and to really you know look at and examine what the other themes are, it's not like I'm just watching it to enjoy it. Um, you know, I'm making notes and I'm kind of research stuff. So there's there's more of a time investment so i appreciate when the film itself is a nice brisk easy to watch kind of uh well-paced um thing that becomes just like eating popcorn with my eyes you know that's yeah, a good way of putting it but uh what do you think daryl jamar what are your guys thoughts on this movie to say that the um as far as like the structure and the pacing i think that this film because it is one of the first noirs, it really solidified that um, first-person narration yeah, kind sure. of, and that really holds the story together. And you're you're following his every word, and he's being kind of witty about it and mysterious about it at the same time. But it it's kind of almost the same thing as in Sunset Boulevard, which I thought was kind of uh, a neat thing to carry over. Mm -hmm. you, it's interesting to see where the director gets their inspiration from in their previous work. It's something mm -hmm. that always fascinates me about these movies, but it is a genuinely entertaining experience outside of that. But uh, Daryl, what about you? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree uh, in terms of the, the timelessness. I think the maybe it's, I don't know, again, how, how we look back on things. And when we were growing up, wow, this is going to sound like an old person, but really it was only, you know, 40 years ago or something like that when I was a kid and would have first seen this on, on the small little black and white TV we had. And uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, I really liked it back then, but I remember all of these movies, I kind of just lumped into one like fast talking crime movie. Like that's just like so much of TCM was that. And my dad loved TCM. So like, I, it was just uh, something very ingrained on me. And, and now that it's been so, like, you know, another 15 20 years removed from that time i think and, and let's be real like you kind of touched on at the beginning too like they show you noirs at the very beginning because i think it does kind of help 
hook you in as a as a little film student that doesn't know much yet but like as now like with all this experience and having made some films myself like god damn these it just it feels masterful now like you see the way like you said they pace some of these scenes and like they will do a three to four minute dialogue scene between two people maybe never cutting from more than three different shots but it feels so quick and so enthralling that the pacing just it, it it keeps it up and i will say one film out of our trilogy i do not think does that <laughs> um oh. but uh, you know when it comes to wilder i think he did have this kind of expertly crafted like they, they spent so long i know this film or this screenplay took like five years or something yeah. like that for you can tell they rehearsed home. a lot too yeah oh yeah it's it's just they're getting it out yeah, <laughs> i could never imagine the and, amount of you know that's it, it's just a huge testament to the actors and we haven't even talked about fred mcmurray's character because no. around this time like you do not show a weak male protagonist you do not show like a morally ambiguous character and here comes along this film where like yes he does try to redeem himself and he is you know the but you know the lesser of two evils but at the very beginning we see him wounded like covering up a wound like deliberately lying to somebody to get to a phone and straight up admitting to crime and murder so in the first five minutes it just sets the tone very differently from a lot of films that are coming out around the same time but it's also i love those kind of openings where it's like it doesn't it doesn't answer every single little question and instead just raises enough questions not so much that's frustrating but just enough that you're just engaged like you want to see what happens next like why did he get shot why did he murder the person for a woman and money who's this woman well how did money get involved like you're just at wondering all these questions from the get-go it's and just like a great Jamar way to get you with uh i'm sorry no i'm done i'm good oh, no, and, uh, <laughs> just like jamara touched on with the narration off, off that like i feel like it did these things so well that it makes sense why like you know everybody would want to make a cheaper version of this and like extend this movement and uh like carry out this genre throughout that decade like it it movies like this like if i was sitting there you know when this came out i would have been so i would have been seeing this like three times a day like it's so me too uh, i don't know like i for its time it's kind of like citizen kane i feel like a lot of people want to hold citizen kane to a modern standard and, and maybe it doesn't quite hold up that way mm -hmm. um because it was very focused on innovation over maybe like we were saying pacing uh. and whatnot but something like this i like again maybe it's just been so long that like maybe it's a bit more nostalgic for me but this both the wilder films to for me like really hit me hard like this is some well-crafted mm -hmm. stuff and like you were saying the acting is so like the worst part of all the acting is her wig um everything else yeah. is fantastic it, it's um, it's not bad in a lot of scenes i think the lighting helps but anytime like the lighting dims down and she's kind of saying in darkness it's like you can see like her hair is significantly more exposed than the rest of her body even without the lighting it's like oh, all right it's a little obvious but for the most part i think they oh, yeah. do a decent oh, yeah. job behind you, you, you got that like hair like kind of so kind of like uh paloing her in, in, in a sense, like all the uh, the light just kind of catches in her hair and makes her look like this innocent angel. Yeah, uh, which fits. may or may not have been intentional. It, it, it would have been intentional, probably. But you know, it's interesting with the whole uh, narration. Like l looking back at this, like you'd see this as kind of cliche the way that he very conveniently 
confesses to yeah. everything in this recording and that narration serves as like exposition for the plot unfolding but you look back at how they did this one it just works so well and yeah everybody that has done this since is kind of derivative but uh and i'm sure this isn't the first film that has done like a confession as uh exposition kind of narration um that's a lot of issues but yeah, I doubt I, it invented on Mius Ratus. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I, but it, it does it so well, and you can understand why everyone has basically copied this. Yeah, Chase uh, the Dragon. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah. To the, that's a perfectly way of putting it. That was kind of what I was trying to touch on right there. Yeah. And the exactly. lighting. But it, it just works. It works so well. Yeah. The can I just the... add? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go on. Nope. Yes. That um, I am so in love with um, Billy Wilder's camera moves. Yes. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's they're always they're not too common, but it's it reminds me of Spielberg where there's a lot of camera movement, but you never really notice it. Like he always does it so yes. subtly and it organically Fluidly. flows mm -hmm. with the more so organically flows with like the dialogue and the scene. Like when Norma and Fred like you know get up after talking for the first time from the couches, you don't even notice there's a camera movement. Like I didn't even notice it till like the first time I watched it. Because it just it so organically flows with the dialogue and with the movie, uh, it's mm -hmm. you know it's it's partially because of technical limitations. Because you could not move those cameras around too much; they were incredibly heavy. So yeah, it's like you if, kind if of you were going to move the camera yeah. along, you had to set up all this hardware. The cameras were like fifty pounds with the magazines and the rails right. and the dolly. But it, it's such a but because of all that like. All, all that like hardware that's needed it's like okay if we're going to move the camera we have to have a very clear reason for it and i think that discipline in the uh you know filmmaking uh adds to the storytelling because like we're only going to move the camera lumber this thing around if there's a very clear kind of narrative purpose for it or these days we have some incredible camera gear and hardware like you may have seen that or like ronin 4d it's like this chicken looking kind of gimbal and camera yeah. built together <laughs> And that looks like a dream camera to carry around like everywhere in film where I can have a, a steady cam, a dolly, and a handheld rig all in one system. But the first thing that people are going to do is just move the camera around because they can. And like these days, we have a lot of people just doing camera moves because they can, not because mm -hmm. it means anything. Where mm -hmm. back then, and you know, maybe, maybe I'm looking back at back then with rose tinted glasses, but because of the hardware limitations, they were a lot more focused in the purpose of why they were doing it. Otherwise they would just keep it on sticks. Right. So mm -hmm. it's nice to appreciate narratively driven camera movement where you, yeah, like you don't even notice it at first. It just works so well and makes sense when you see it. Absolutely. And, you know, part of that also inspires, probably inspired the exaggerated lighting because you couldn't move the camera very often. It's like, we need to get the lighting just right. We need to get the mise en scene just right. And we need to rely on that more to convey an image. And that's where, like, the great iconic lighting kind of started in this movie. Like, the very harsh shadows and the, like, you know, sometimes the eyes will be highlighted, but nothing else. And you'll see the lights for the blinds. It really, that's another thing that kind of establishes, like, a dark atmosphere. Like, a lot of films in, like, the 30s and 20s were, you know, like, there's some great cinematography for sure. But a lot of it was, like, kind of flat, you know get the studio lighting mm -hmm. just right we need to see everything that's going on well and this film offered a different take on that visually 
Well, you know, mm -hmm. film stock was very limited back then. You needed to pump the sets yeah. filled with light to get any kind of exposure. But I also just love how film naturally falls off into the shadows. For sure. And I love how they weren't afraid to kind of underexpose images. That really very literally lends into the noir uh, theme is that they really let the shadows come into play. And it's a beautiful thing. It was really a style thing in the 50s on like sitcoms tv where they just started evenly flat flat lighting everything that way the actors and the cameras can kind of move anywhere in one sense it's free but on the other hand there's no uh there's, there's no not motion. as much visual depth or mystique to it yeah. it's just sort of like utilitarian where these were definitely more uh stylized and and pointed in a way where it brings you into this world well, and like you're saying with the film stock limitations to get those crisp shadows, like it's kind of, it's kind of like laziness. I don't want to call it laziness, but like you're saying, it, it leans that way because you only needed half the light to get this like open, like very, you know, fine thing. You could leave it fairly, you know, you wouldn't have to stop down that much, but to get these crazy, uh, like you're saying, Maison scene filled, uh, beautiful shadows and stuff, you have to stop down so much to get that. And if you're going to stop down, you have to double the lighting. And yeah, I can only imagine like <laughs> the pain it must have been to get it just yeah, right. The amount of like, giant something. like burning arc lamps or whatever. Yeah. I, I'm not even sure what the really old school lamps were like. I'm familiar with like Fresnel tungsten lamps, but those were like new back then. Yeah, um, no, the arcs and... were the sensible ones back then. <laughs> oh, fuck. Yeah. yeah. Not only that, but, like... but if you touch it, you burn. Like the metal yeah. was uh, not exactly desirable. Yeah. And I think studio workers would have to wear like heavy duty gloves just to carry them oh, yeah. around after a while gloves you know there's this uh, joke that was passed around where it has this guy right next to the lamp and then it cuts to uh an image of um like two-face that's how hot like those lamps were <laughs> if you were that close to them but um that's accurate yeah no like it's it's no joke just the amount of like energy and power that it, it's just cool to appreciate kind of the hardware that went into these but also this is how you can tell it's an old movie. Like if you knew nothing about film and you looked at like the cinematography or you would just notice all these unnatural harsh shadows, which is part of like the film noir style, but you can tell, oh, that's a studio lamp. That's not what like a soft, dim, uh, hard, like a fixture in that office would look like. It's like this harsh spotlight kind of on him as he's sitting at this desk. Um, but it, it, it is it does create kind of an interesting style though. Mm -hmm. and, and at this point I think we should talk about the characters involved like we already talked about friend McMurray's character briefly um, sorry uh, Walter Walter um, Keys he's probably my favorite character in this movie like Same. I just I love the actor and he has like this hard ass behavior but like you can tell like he still cares about Walter and I love the scene where he's like uh, uh, it's like uh, why do you want to go around pounding doors all day <laughs> it's like oh it's an, <laughs> you know it's an easy it's like, oh, saying that your desk is an easy living. It's like, oh, you think you're <laughs> just patting me on the back? And I, I can't remember the exact dialogue. It has been a bit since I watched it again. But just that whole dynamic where it's like, uh, you know, I'm seeming hard-ass, but I want, like, a good future for you. And there's no future in being the salesman, which kind of ties into the anti-capitalist themes, too. Where it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the only way out is just to help your friends, not to just support this corrupt system over and over again and he keeps trying to help him but walter kind of keeps digging himself deeper and you know the whole dynamic of lighting the cigarettes and apparently friend mcmurray actually you know it had to be practical but he did know that technique and he improvised it and billy wilder liked it enough that he just kept doing it and 
it's not as easy as it looks. Like, I actually no. tried it one time, and it is not easy to pull off. And, you know, with um, Keys flicking the cigarette at the end of the movie was a great way of showing, like, just... <laughs> It kind of adding to the tragedy of the scene and showing just how much he appreciated helping them do something as simple as laying a cigarette for him throughout the whole movie. That was like a great visual way of showing that. My only problem with their relationship was the bit of narration where it's like, uh, I, I knew you were hard on my, me, Keys, but deep down I know you were soft on me. And I thought, y you didn't need to tell us that. Like, there was enough about their actual relationship that conveyed that information that felt felt a little too handholdy, and I get it for the time. Like maybe they thought the audience, you know, needed that spelled out for them, but it, it did kind of take away from the relationship a little bit. But you know, still one of the best bromances in Hollywood. <laughs> no, no gay vibes whatsoever. Uh, I mean, very, <laughs> very gay vibes. Oh, slightly. Uh... Yeah, it's like you ever married? Nah. <laughs> I mean, like, even down to, like, I really like the guy that played Nino Zacchetti. He didn't get much time, but he was doing his shtick really well. Like, I, I just, I don't know, maybe it was just the, the discipline of direction on set or whatnot, but uh, it really did feel like across the board. I just, I loved everyone that was on screen. Yeah, even, even trying to think. Um, Mr. Diedrichson, mm -hmm. who barely gets any screen time, like, he, <laughs> he kind of chews the scenery and given this, like, temperamental behavior towards his wife and how paranoid he is like Walter's being very patient with him it's like look if you just signed here you know you know, uh if you just signed for this policy you know we can just get it over with he can cash in the check later time he's constantly like uh it's like yeah but when am i ever gonna need accident insurance you know that this just sounds like a fraud this just <laughs> sounds like this sounds like that and the fact that barbara stan sorry uh, mrs diedrichson and their daughter in law i suppose or playing at a different table like that's a good way of kind of visually conveying just how straining their relationship is together and you hear about it all the time but it's nice to have a scene that actually kind of shows it and it's also the first time where he's basically thinking all right like i need to do this like this is the <laughs> this is it this is the final moment that kind of convinces me that this needs to happen it's a good way of kind of visually conveying that information it's <laughs> now one of my favorite scenes well, I think one character we haven't mentioned yet that I think we're missed considering the whole theme of this episode is Femme Fatales is, uh, you know, Bar Barbara Sandwich character, Phyllis. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and something that I was uh, prefacing this whole thing is that Femme Fatale, you could argue, is a projection of, like, male anxieties and the shifting um, roles in the workplace or whatever. But what's interesting, I was just reading this, apparently um, her character was based off of a real person, uh, Ruth Snyder who uh, was the subject of this uh, murder trial where she did actually really? kill her her husband. So uh -huh. it is based somewhat on real. It is based on reality. And that's what uh, James M. Kane kind of wrote into the script. Yeah. He so, did that a I lot think... too. Apparently he based a lot of his stories on like real people and really strange events and news stories <laughs> that came out around the time. So, mm. and that's what grounds these films so much, I think. And, I'm kind of interested to hear your opinion on this. Like, what do you think about her depiction of the character? Because I'm kind of on two sides about it. On one hand, I get it. Like, she is a little bit mustache twirly and probably a little bit exaggerated. Like, when the husband is murdered, we cut to her face just kind of smiling as this evil music plays. Or it's like, yeah, all right, I see what you're doing. But at the same time, you could make the argument that Mr. Dietrichson, sorry, Walter is just as corrupt like he 
did something terrible. He did something terrible out of selfishness and, you know, love and out of loneliness and desperation. Like, he didn't need any more money. He had a cushy job. He didn't necessarily need a girl. He had, like, a pretty good lifestyle. But, you know, this kind of corrupt behavior... And that's what the film is about. And a lot of these films are about this, you know, the need for more, the need for greed, the need for, like, this capitalistic desire to get more in your life just because, you know, when you're not happy, just get more. Just get more of something. That kind of just drives people apart and drives them to do terrible things. And I'd argue... It, she even says, like, we're both rotten. And there's a common theme of, like, there's, you know, there's no point in hiding from this, Walter. Like, you're not going to get away with this, just like her. No matter how innocent you try to be. So, but, Daryl and Jamar, I'm kind of interested to hear your perspective on Mrs. Dietrichson and her nice wig. The wig. I mean, the plan was mostly his, right? Like, I like a lot of what you're saying, because I think him being the narrator, he's in the fact that this is a quote-unquote on confession. Like, we gotta, it is a bit untrustworthy in that. He's trying oh, to skew sure. all the mm -hmm. events to, to skew him in the best light. Even And, you know, she is this thing that took me down and the whole Zaketi thing. And, like, I, I do feel like there's a different, the difference to me is she can pull the second shot. So in that way, wasn't she like that hair more moral than him? <laughs> um, because he just goes bam, bam, like two shots immediately as a as a perfect statement back. Um, but if we're talking like acting wise, I think it's she does an absolutely phenomenal job. Those intro scenes are carried on charisma and chemistry. And I, I think it's pretty it's pretty easy to just say, oh, yeah, you know, that's that's a typical or like the, the root of the cliches and whatnot. But like that was two people on set and they fucking killed it that day. <laughs> like, yeah. And, it was, and... like, it's, it's crazy to see. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how Jamar feels about it personally. Good question. I, I kind like, I, I love her, but, and that we, I, I don't know. I, I really like the performance and I think she, that she did a phenomenal job. Um, as, yeah, uh, as a like a, a femme fatale, I think that she sets the bar really high. Um, but I, in comparison to the other films we watched, I think I like those femme fatales a bit better, which is strange. Well, not necessarily. They've had more time to develop. Like this was That's kind of true. like setting up the archetype in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. Yeah, girl boss, he had it coming. Um, <laughs> that would be no, just, just, yeah. no, I just I, I, I Go ahead. I, I like how she um like this is one of the first examples of like a female using her her sexuality as a weapon almost mm -hmm. to kind of like lure him in in the beginning with um just with her intro scene and um kind of just taking control of of her reality and formulating this plan with him and following through with it. Right down the line. Yeah. I think that's the line, right? It's yeah. a very interesting, you know, depiction of that. And I'm going to quote Jurassic Park here where <laughs> uh, you can see it in their eyes. She's figuring things out. And there are so many scenes where it's like, it's, you can see in her eyes, this plan just kind of clicking together when he's talking about this, uh, she talks about this accident insurance, and her eyes just light up with <laughs> the more information she gets, and 
the more she finds out about <laughs> how much money she could just get out of the situation. Just little details like that I just love where, like, the eyes tell one story and, the like, the rest of the body language tells another. Like, I always love performances yeah. like that. It makes me watch this more fun, too. I, I Yeah. I, I like when her husband is getting killed by uh, the guy. The shot is just on her and her kind of reaction um, to it. Great way I to cut really it. interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good way to cut around it, but also shows, like, her having some kind of release from that. I don't know. There's different ways to kind of interpret that, but I thought that was really interesting, mm -hmm. the way they, uh, they edited that scene or didn't show the murder happening but uh this kind of catharsis that she's like feeling perhaps uh as it's happening but um it is interesting though like even though she does this absolutely great job with performance apparently she was uh, a bit hesitant with it like she was the first choice to play the character but she was uh really unnerved um when seeing that the role was of a ruthless killer and um she uh brought this up to billy wilder and his response was uh very of the time, I'd say. Are you a mouse or an actress? You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See? But, yeah, it was a good decision in the end because, you know, she played this iconic great character that would kind of, you know, morph into a very interesting character trope later on in cinema. And, you know, and once again, you could argue that other characters are just as shady as she is. Like, even Nino was, <laughs> like, kind of falling for her at one point, too. And, Nino, sorry, make a Kitchen Nightmares reference, and uh, mm. even with what Nino was going on, where they, um, her girl, his girlfriend mentions that, you know, he didn't make enough money, so the father, you know, my mother and father didn't want him around. Even that idea, where it's like, you know, you're just not bringing home enough money. All these characters are consumed by money and greed, one way or another. Walter with working for the insurance company. And Miss and Keys is kind of like the one character that's exempt from that to an extent. Like he's trying to be humble, he's trying to offer better jobs, especially for his friend. And because of that, he's the one character that isn't, you know, affected by this crime whatsoever. And he's the one who could kind of take the moral high ground. So I thought that was an interesting take. And his last line too, where you're just expecting this big rant and this big speech, and Walter says, "All right, time for the big speech, Keys." And all he can muster is Walter. You're all washed up. Like, you don't deserve a big speech. You don't deserve, like, any kind of effort into talking you down. It's just this simple takedown, and that's all you get. <laughs> that's all you're worth to me at the, at this point. Uh, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts of his performance, in all honesty, and kind of leaning into the next film we're going to talk about. I think he does most of that acting with his face. Like, sure. he didn't need to talk in those moments because mm -hmm. of, of how powerful he was... Uh, you know, because, yeah, that's a, that's what the audience wants. You are looking to him the same way Walter what? is, begging for this reaction, because he's been the hothead the whole movie, and reversing that at the end is, oh, just a... a you know what, just looking at the whole cast of characters in this, like, you can tell that these, like, actors were just of a completely different generation. Like, just the way they express themselves, the mannerisms is just very unlike something you see today and it's just interesting to go back and kind of see this very theatrical like you can tell that they've been acting to camera for a long time but there's still this very like expressionistic kind of body language with accentuating every single bit of dialogue and point that they make like i like their boss uh that they have where he starts to suspect that there's foul play yeah. um where's that gut of yours and, keys uh, i yeah it's like 
and uh, the, the way he was just delivering his lines was just kind of it's kind of hilarious kind of looking back at this because it seems a little over the top but it's just very of its time kind of acting and it's funny that when i see um some interview bits of norm mcdonald's i see him kind of emulating that style uh in, in his jokes and God it's very it. kind of out of pocket um yeah that was me that, that whole point was just me to see where norm mcdonald into the discussion yeah, yeah. Just say one every time <laughs> every time did you guys have any issues with it because mine are very minor uh the wig uh <laughs> easy one go on I really don't know, man. Like, I I found myself enthralled by all of this. I, again, saying the pain, like, I'm I'm so floored that it was as long as it was because it does feel like a solid hour and a half. I know, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'll let me think on that for a sec. Maybe maybe what, I do something. One nitpick that I have, it doesn't have to do with the movie, but more just like a lost skill set. How do you light a match with your thumb, and that's it? Like, I want to know how to do that. Do, oh, do you need like he a really strong talus on your finger? That's the thing. Yeah, like he he actually did that. Like, how how do I not? Why do I not know how to do I, I that? Don't I don't know. know I think like, it's do like flipping a coin, and you got to strike the edge. Like you kind of got to go right diagonally angle. up it with yeah. your nail, so it's like yeah. It's... causing a strike yeah i don't know yeah man. <laughs> I, I i thought you just need like a lot of callus on your thumb or something like are, are, are they all just like that tough as nails be. back in the day i don't know they're all hard-boiled <laughs> literally yeah. yeah and they get cigarettes yeah. in their sandwiches what about you jamar <laughs> um i don't really i i don't really have any nitpicks like when i watch this movie it's it's just like one of those classics i'm just along for the ride fair enough Exactly. Uh, I mentioned earlier that like the narration is a little too like on the nose. Like there's a scene where he's like, uh, "I went to the bowling alley and played a few lanes. Uh, went to the parking lot to have a smoke." It's like, okay, like I I get it. Like I see what's happening. I didn't need this part of the story narrated, but it, it's such a minor nitpick mm -hmm. because, like you said, there's a good narrative excuse for the narration. It was kind of setting up a very common trope, and it is well written mm -hmm. and well delivered overall. My Biggest complaint is that it's like there are some logic issues every now and again. Like apparently the guns at the end of the movie are quiet guns. These unsilenced revolvers are very quiet because no neighbors hear that. Even Nino, who was inches away from the house <laughs> by the time Walter leaves, is like, "Come on, he didn't hear the gunshot, really." There was like several gunshots. Nothing else was happening. It's a quiet neighborhood. I don't know, man. Like that was a, that was a little too convenient. That was a little too like, oh, we we gotta keep the plot moving. We can't deal with police until like the epic climax. But that's it. Like I said, like very very nitpicky, and it's yeah, incredible. I I, yeah. I have another extremely minor nitpick. That grocery store doesn't look real to me. That looks like a set. Really? And also, well, no. And 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 the other thing <laughs> is like the the the, the shelves are like up to like the top of his neck and you know that's just so you can see their faces and whatnot but then there's like the one woman one woman complaining that everything's on the higher shelf and like <laughs> that's she, not a high she, shelf she, she <laughs> could have reached it if she wanted to he was, he, he was just kind of standing in the way and she was just trying to be polite yeah. that and part's it, true like it, it probably took out a couple of shelves and a couple of you know cans oh but... no it, it's a set the whole, the whole thing it is, is a set. but it looks really convincing yeah, most of them are sets it honestly yeah. looks oh, convincing yeah. i don't know i thought it looked pretty good but 
Yeah, just shows how good the production design was, I guess. Uh, final ratings for Double Indemnity. We'll let the guests start. I'll give it an 8. Great, mate. Daryl. Oh, yeah. I mean, I lean more towards a 9, personally. Nice. Ooh. I agree. 9 out of 10. It is excellent, incredibly well-paced, holds up after all this time, and just, again, I cannot believe a film like this was made in the early 40s, but I'm so happy it was. I I'm going to give it an 8 just to create headroom for the next film. <laughs> I think it's a solid film otherwise. Fantastic. Sunset Boulevard. I think we agreed that Daryl and Jamar, you both should introduce this one since you have more experience, a little more experience with the film industry than we do. However you guys want to introduce it is up to you, but either way, spoilers for Sunset Boulevard. I mean, usually spoilers for all the movies. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, spoilers <laughs> for all the movies, but Sunset Boulevard especially. A lot of very interesting things happen in the story. Um, yeah, totally. Uh, so about five years later, if I'm not mistaken, six. I'm pretty sure. Six yeah, five years, years after, uh, six years after... Uh, Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder returned to the genre and made what I think is one of the greatest films of all time, like straight up. And I would not have had that opinion before rewatching it. Uh, I do not remember this really connecting with me in uh, in film school when I first came across this uh, this wild story. Um, but nowadays, yeah, I like you said, it hits home a little bit more, but uh, it's a really short and quaint description uh, for the actual synopsis. It's a screenwriter uh, develops a dangerous relationship with a faded film star determined to make a triumphant return. But I think it's so much more than that. Um, I do think that only six years later, Wilder was already ready to get reflexive on um, maybe it wouldn't even be a genre, but returning to the same kind of themes that we now know as noir. Uh, and yeah, he came back with a, a real, uh, a real swing. Uh, I don't know what to say. Grand slam of a movie. Uh, basically this, uh, I'm trying to, where's the names? Uh, Joe Gillis. That's his name played by William Holden is a fading screenwriter that can't get much work uh there's a great line where it's like oh i heard you had a lot of talent and he says oh well that was last that was year last this year, year i'm just trying to make rent or something like that yeah, <laughs> and that uh, so he's he can't sell any scripts and he's having a rough go of it and the first little chunk of the movie kind of leads you down the path of you know there, he's got some loan sharks after him and he's he's uh he's not in a good place financially by any means he even tries to beg for a loan from his uh agent i believe it is the writing agent he has and to which his writing agent replies the some of the best things ever written were written on an empty stomach uh which definitely reinforces <laughs> some of the themes of this movie for sure um and after mm -hmm. you know in a pulp fiction-esque way coming across uh the people looking for him at a stoplight he gets in a little bit of a a car chase and ends up blowing a tire at which point the closest driveway he finds he turns into which is where we meet uh, yeah you could call her the femme fatale of this film norma desmond um norma but, desmond know, i feel like we could have our <laughs> whole discussion on just that fact alone um sure. but yeah then then the rest is more so what you you get with the synopsis where uh the end up forming a somewhat symbiotic relationship as it would seem in, to him um but uh lots of creepy stuff happens especially with a 
the bodyguard or servant mm-hmm. of some kind that's around the butler uh, max first yeah. butler, that's what they call him and uh yeah i personally i love this film we can get into the, all the details later on i think that's <laughs> all the big setup of it for me but yeah this this really is uh such a friggin' fantastic film it... I, feel, I need new uh new adjectives today um but yeah jamar anything you have to add sorry it really is just like um a dissection on fame and what that can do to a person and how people are changed by by being on the screen or being part of a film and i think it's so cool to have that insight and to see it all play out from so many different angles because you learn in the like later on that the butler is also a director, a former director, and everyone it feels like was part of the film world. So it is just kind of this like degradation of all these filmmakers and watching the fallout of what Hollywood does to you. Ooh. Exactly. Oh yeah. No, it's it's like the the fame of being a su- successful star. And then dealing with like the rejection of her not being like wanted by sound films or, yes. you know, like, like like everyone else moving on and, sh- and she hasn't. And she's kind of lived in her own like isolated world where she um, has this kind of inflated ego as a, like a coping mechanism, basically, where and it, it all it all is, you know, a set in one line saying, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Mm-hmm. Iconic line delivery <laughs> for sure. And Hollywood kind of encourages that kind of behavior. Like, you get, like, these actresses and actors that are held up to such high pedestals, and they're constantly surrounded by interviewers that don't, like, insult them, and fans that just give them unabashed love, and they're thrown into, like, these big roles and these big pictures, usually with, like, these, like, morally righteous characters that... And, like, of course they're going to get consumed by all of that and just start thinking, like, everything they're doing is right. Everything they're doing is the best way. Like, the world can't live without me. And for soon, one of the most telling lines in the movie is, uh, without me, there wouldn't be a Paramount. And that's very much how a lot of actors feel. It's like, you know, nobody would have jobs without me. Nobody would be around without yeah. me. But they, they don't really understand that the move just the world just moves around them. Like, it evolves over time, and they aren't going to be a part of it, but they can't accept that. And sure, it's a little bit exaggerated in this movie, for sure, but there are people like Norma Desmond to an extent in the world. Look at something like, you know, Amy's Baking Company, where essentially these two psychopaths ran a restaurant, but the issue was the husband told her that everything she was doing was right. Everything she... And the customers are just in the wrong. You can't take any criticism. And, you know, it got to her head. It just led her to firing so many people and living in this world where, you know, she's right and everyone else is wrong. It's, you know, the same thing here. People like this do exist to an extent. It's very scary fun. And the fact that film from 1950, again, just blows my mind that it conveys that so well. Let alone it's meta great. in 1950. Yeah, like, it's very meta in the movie. Film. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, wow. it's crazy that they green this too when yeah. it kind of puts them, you know, it, it, criti- it, it criticizes them just as much as, you know, 100%. anything. Yeah. Well, there's two kind of funny facts about that. One, because you just mentioned the Paramount line where she said it wouldn't exist without me. I think part of me thinks that was added after she was finally cast as the role because she was key in the early day, like 
like Gloria Swanson, the actress, was key in the early days of Paramount. Oh, for sure. And like a lot of mm-hmm. the you know trivia stuff I found about this is like you know it really wouldn't have been around without her. So he was like constantly pushing that fucking that meta line right to the edge. Um, Honestly, that's great because then it feels really like earned in that metatextual sense. Like she literally was part of that. So that's really cool, yeah, actually. Not I only no that, idea. but the films in the movie that she was in that she'd watch with uh, Joe, uh, those were actual films that she was in. Those were like actual real mm-hmm. movies. It wasn't just something oh, they cool. shot for the movie. And to extend on that, all of the actors in the infamous poker scene are actually silent actors, including... The one, the only, Buster Keaton, who says, pass, I'll pass. Who was a big, like, silent action star and would constantly nearly kill himself with all these dangerous stunts in movies like The General and uh, what's the one where uh, he's climbing the clock tower? I'm not quite sure, but all these silent uh, actors. Safety last. Safety last, yeah. Oh, no. I I think you're thinking of Harold Lloyd, but people often confuse those two. I apologize, but but he was a little. No, no, like, yeah. Yeah, Buster Keaton is a legendary stunt guy, and it's funny to it's it's awesome to see them all in this movie kind of playing um, themselves essentially or a version of themselves in a sound in a sound world. Um, this brings me back to when we were talking about uh, Charlie Chaplin um, doing his first sound picture and it being kind of a, a stab at Holly the Hollywood system for making him kind of integrate sound into his you know films and how much of a Chad move that was. I'm not going to apologize for that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and but, all um, of these actors' careers were basically ruined by that. Like, Charlie Chaplin was a rare exception where he's like, all right, they want me to talk, I'll talk. I'll make a movie like The Great Dictator where I have all of these long, mon- important monologues. But actors like Buster Keaton and um, Gloria Swanson, to an extent, were considered like too over-the-top and too eccentric, and their voices didn't really work, and... You know, any of those issues would come up and their careers were basically ruined by the introduction of sound so and Norma Desmond constantly blames sound or it's like uh, we didn't need dialogue we had faces did they forget what a star looks like like they think like dialogue ruined the industry but really it was just like they don't realize it was an inevitable change in the system like so many movies were assisted by dialogue but of course you know they just needed something to put their blame on and it's interesting to hear like the debate between both forms because it doesn't really take the side of dialogue films either. There's, you know, he's trying to pitch this very generic script at the start of the movie, and every time he pitches the script, it's just the most generic. Like, oh, uh, it's like this movie meets this movie. It's like this movie meets that movie. It's just he's pitching it for the sake of pitching it. There's not really passion behind the story. And I love the dynamic he has with the other writer as well. And one of my favorite line exchanges is, uh, I think the story should just say a little something. That's all oh, I see are all about the message and not about the story. And I think that's kind of Billy Wilder's way of saying those two forms need to come together. Like, neither approach really works on their own. Totally. To really make a compelling story. Like, all three elements need to come together, and neither of these characters really realize that until it's too late. So it's meta yeah. on that level I, as well. I I love seeing these kind of discussions happen where filmmakers are quietly venting their frustrations with dealing with, you know, different people uh, in the industry, uh, be it writers or other filmmakers or producers, and just kind of quietly um, venting about it in in this sense. Um, 
in a very kind of subtle, nuanced way, unlike Lars von Trier and Nymphomaniac. Um, Cough. <laughs> salty. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I, I still taste the salts on the back of my tongue after that movie. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, no, I, I, I actually really... I, to just collect my thoughts here i like um when he first meets up with norman and she has all these like sprawled notes and she says she's been writing this for years and it's going to be her magnum opus and he's just like sitting there reading kind of through all of it these like loosely drawn kind of manuscripts and he says there's something you know refreshing about reading bad writing um and i just found that really funny because uh I've, I've read much of bad writing in my time <laughs> yeah exactly and uh, that's kind of what makes their dynamic work, though. Like, she is so over the top, and the butler's so over the top, but he's the only one who's really, like, taking it seriously, and he's the only one that's kind of saying what the audience is thinking. <laughs> like, one of the... There was, like, genuine attempts at humor in this, and I think that's what makes it work, too, is that it doesn't take itself too seriously that it can't, like... It, it knows how absurd it is. It doesn't pretend to take itself... Like it, oh, I was laughing jokes on it as well. Oh yeah, oh, the, yeah. one of the funniest bits in the movie was when they were in the car and she's like, uh, criticize these clothes. These clothes are perfectly fine, but she's like, no, we need to get you a nice suit. And it's like, I don't need a nice suit. I like what I'm wearing. And it's like, uh, and it goes over this long monologue, and there's a few seconds a beat. You think it's over, and he throws on his cigarette. It's like, do you have to smoke? And he's just like, oh fuck, god, god damn it. And like the comedic timing behind that was very entertaining just that moment where it's like okay good they finally stopped arguing it's like oh god damn it here we go again <laughs> and their dynamic was very entertaining and very very creepy too like i forgot how creepy this movie was at times the first time you see like all this stuff from his apartment and midway through his narration randy it's like wait what the hell was it all my stuff doing in my apartment like how did they get in my apartment and get all this information and they never yeah. really explain it which it kind of bugged me a little bit, but then I think it kind of fits the themes where it's like if you have a lot of money and power, you can basically, you know, get away with anything you want and get all the information you want. So it kind of works in that sense, but it was very kind of nitpicky. It was like, I, how did you get his information? He didn't mention where he lived or anything. Look, probably done for pacing because, again, this is also a very briskly paced film. <laughs> Another, I think it's even longer than Double Indemnity, and it somehow feels even shorter. Yeah, this strikes a perfect balance. Like I, oh, I can't say enough about how how much I almost didn't want this film to end. I loved <laughs> every new setup they were going to, and and the way that the story actually evolved. Because as we said before, like these these films begin at the end, both of them, and you know you know right mm. from the beginning where it's going but for some reason it just makes the journey that much more fun like mm -hmm. i i don't know why it, it did strike me so differently this time but like so many of those conversations about like writing together like you mentioned like just the fact that they have this untitled love story and it, how it mirrors everything it, i oh yeah i do it, can't can't say enough. And the opening kind of makes it more foreboding, I find, because in the opening of Double Indemnity, the little, little teaser, there's like a slight hope that he could get away with it. There's a slight hope that we don't really know what's going to happen after he makes the call, so he could potentially get away or redeem himself. But in Sunset Boulevard, it's like, no, he's dead. Like, that's it. End of the line. Yeah, it's, it's, like, you know exactly it, it's where it's funny going. It's this heartbreaking. Whole, yeah. It's funny this whole narration is coming from a dead man in a swimming pool. Mm -hmm. But yeah. then... And there is this idea of like fatalism where he 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 sums it up as 
there's a man who wanted a pool. He got the pool, and then he drowned in the pool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very Kubrick in his description of the plot, just like the yeah. bare essentials. <laughs> not bleak whatsoever. <laughs> no, not at all. And it's outlook. Yeah, for sure. Uh, let's talk about Gloria Swanson and her character. Because this is the reason I wanted to introduce this film, because this was less of a typical femme fatale, more of like a sympathetic take on the character. We mentioned like just how egotistical and obsessed she is, but you, it, it's about halfway through where you realize like she's suicidal. Like they had to take out all of the razors and all of the guns and all of the anything that she could potentially harm herself with around the house just so she wouldn't kill herself. Like she's on that level. So you're secondhand yeah. embarrassed for her, but you're also like feeling for her at the same time. You perfectly understand where she's coming from and how the system destroyed someone like her and it is heartbreaking and creepy to watch in equal measure so it's a very interesting step in the next direction for that kind of character i mean she's a very tragic figure because she is the product of this system that builds mm -hmm. her up and made her a star and then uh more or less discarded her and then seeing just the kind of fallout of that play out is uh, a tragic thing where she has to, you know, kind of cope by gassing herself up or developing this kind of ego and, you know, believing in herself when no one else does. And then everyone else just trying to keep up this illusion in this big empty house that she's in, that she's still someone to them when they've all but forgotten about her. It's, it's just a very tragic kind of figure, but it shows how, you know, uh, these people get into these uh, situations um, from like a system that kind of drops them when they uh, no, no longer need them. Jamar, is this a better femme fatale for you? I just, I thought this one was um, a very interesting take because typically with femme fatales in, in general, um, they're after money, they're after the greed, they want to take down someone, some guy, somewhere, and, and succeed, and she already has it all. Norma had, has everything. She has the house, she has the money, like, at the New Year's party, she's there just telling, um, telling Joe, like, what do you want? I'll buy you anything you want. I, I have oil fields over here, like, I, like, she has everything that she could possibly need. And, it's it's interesting that like she she still has this disassociation and she has Max like feeding her delusions and it it is very sympathetic in comparison like instead of I you're you're rooting for her to become sane almost but. And that's where I think it really starts yeah, to twist the genre, right? Uh, like, it starts to get reflexive on itself. Because the twist in this one, like, usually the twist is that, oh, the, the, the woman was behind it or whatnot, if we're talking the cliched uh, mm -hmm. look at it. But, like, with this, Max is the one who has the goals, yeah. right? Like, he came back to Norma because he just wanted to be with her. He manipulates the, the situations around because he still thinks he can either end up with her or maybe for a while he believes in the, the delusion that maybe she can get another picture up and going because hell, you know, he's a direct, he can be right there and live it all out with her. But like, you know, like you said, he's the creepy one who's getting the bags from the places. And I don't know, in the end, like 
he has more i don't know not to gain i guess but like his maintaining this like thing he's reaching for like maybe he does have this hope of ending up with her one one day again but whereas like like jamar is saying it's not really norma pushing it forward in that fatal way like i feel like her tragedy just makes her on this downfall with um keep forgetting his name gillis gillis is it yes yeah 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 and and i think it that's where it does start to get a lot less cookie cutter and that's why the ending i think started to hit Mm. me so much um it dips a toe into the surreal too like i feel like i i just like the lack of blood in the ending and it's like he's Mm -hmm. he kind of gave up playing the haze code because i know with the writing of this one like how you said you know it getting green lit the way they did it was saying that they were adapting a story that was like, I think it was called can of beans <laughs> and they would give them like five pages at a time. Um, and, but the funny thing is once Paramount found out that they were doing all this meta stuff, they were actually fine with it. So like really? if they weren't okay, we probably would have never seen the film. That's interesting. Um, but no. yeah, I, I, it definitely got its foot in the door before it really like asked for forgiveness instead of permission. It may have been too late at that, <laughs> yeah. th- that point too. It may have been like, well, we're going to lose a lot of money if we pull out. So I yeah. guess we don't really have a choice, but be okay with it. Well, no, I think, and I think that's good that uh, good on them for being, you know, sports about it and making this happen. Um, was interesting about uh, Gloria Swanson's character. I mean, she, she almost reminds me of like that really rich, affluent aunt who's kind of estranged from the family. And it's just trying yeah. desperately to connect with, with, with you because you're the only one that's like showed her attention in all in all these years. Um, that's I, I don't know. I got it. I got that kind of vibe from it, but no, I, I think it does show. It is very reflective on the femme fatale character because, like I was saying, um, often they seem to be these like maniacal must mustache twirling, even though they don't have mustaches to twirl. They somehow <laughs> manage to twirl quite they a bit. They grow a mustache um, just to twirl it where, and then lose the mustache. Yes. She, where her downfall is a product of like something bigger than that and of Hollywood basically. So it's kind of pinning that back onto them. Like do femme fatales exist or is this something Hollywood has created uh, for the big screen to inject our anxieties onto? And I think that that's an interesting kind of thing that this film uh, presents. Um, and I could tell that David Lynch saw this back in the day and got a lot of ideas Oh yeah, and it's really cool. To this movie see. walked um, so Mulholland Drive could run. Exactly. Yeah, lots of vibes from that, and the ending too is just so heartbreaking. Where it's like, she doesn't even realize what's happening around her, and you know, they, she has to be convinced that this is the scene, the palace, and she's like, yes, yes. Oh, I can't go on. I'm too happy. Uh, I'd just like to make a shout out to show just how happy I am to be working again. All right, Mrs. Demille, I'm ready for my close-up. I probably butchered that wholeheartedly, but it's very tragic. And it is exaggerated just enough to make you go like, all right, mm-hmm. is this really happening? Is it not? Why don't they just cuff her and arrest her? But I think it does fit like the dreamlike logic. And there is like a satirical slant to it that can definitely like mm-hmm. let it slide. And the fact well, that they... her friend has to watch her. It is almost a literal downward spiral with her descending the staircase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ever so slowly. Yeah. <laughs> We do have a scene but, explaining it though that that kind of I didn't remember it but upon rewatching it that little that little moment with the two cops where they kind of look at each other and say well she's heading downstairs. Well, it's, no, like, she, they, like are like, you going uh, to one way to get her downstairs. You know she's cra- yes exactly. 
but like are you gonna do that like i think that's where you know and this is a time where you couldn't be on pills or people would think you were a crazy person in in any way shape or form so like these people being that stunned i don't i feel like that might just be more accurate for that time oh everybody else being stunned for sure like i get it it's like she's a celebrity when the celebrity gets arrested now like paparazzi's constantly like trying to hog you know get the footage as soon as they can and getting into a crime scene before when they really shouldn't or when they're supposed to especially back then they weren't really good at holding those kind of people back as much back in the 50s as well so there is enough like reality behind it that the scene works but I think it was the point that was supposed to be a bit exaggerated to kind of show the downward spiral that both characters kind of suffered at the end. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. It dips that tone in the surreal. That's like, that's the scene. Yeah, where it fits really very <laughs> well. Yeah. And yeah. the set is... Go on. I, I, yeah, I love how this film ends in the kind of surreal territory it uh, it ends up in, and that's always been the most memorable scene for me and why it's been so quoted and it's a really beautiful moment, but there was some stuff coming back to this film that I noticed at the very beginning that I didn't notice on the first run, and it's p- part of his narration. He was saying, um, you know, I'll tell you the true story before the press, uh, you know, distorts it, which I think is really interesting because, you know, we talk about how distorted and polarizing the media is today, but uh, that was even a problem back then. Um, so it was just a little bit of, you know, throwaway dialogue that he had that I thought was really interesting. Um and then there was another fact I was reading. Apparently, this house wasn't actually on Sunset Boulevard, um, but it still exists on. Uh, I, th- I think the the street was Quebec. Really? Or was that the last film? Huh. I was reading some trivia. No, I think oh, it's I, left this one was Quebec. So yeah, I remember that. I, actually, no, I think it's the last film that's on Quebec Street, which is interesting. But anyway, wow, these places still exist because they're Hollywood history. That just adds to like the vibes of the movie that. You just can't get rid of these figures in history. Like, they're always going to last as soon as you put them in the spotlight. You know, she's literally mm-hmm. put in the spotlight, and that's the only way, like, other people notice her. It's because, yeah, and like, another... the spotlight's focused yeah. on her. Another interesting thing is that, um, you know, unlike Phyllis's character in the, in the last film, that actress was uh, kind of hesitant to be a part of it, and she was kind of talked into it in that kind of masculine way where this one um gloria swanson had already accepted that hollywood didn't want her anymore and she had like moved on with her life like she was doing some radio work in new york and uh some television stuff so she was happy but she did find the script really interesting like huh what if i did like play played the opposite kind of thing like what if i uh didn't accept that this is how things were what would that be like so i think that's really cool of her to kind of approach it that way where she wasn't you know, actually going through this turmoil, but she could kind of imagine herself in that kind of opposite sense. I think that's really cool that she was able to approach it that way. Nice. Yeah, and then for you sure. still got all that past uh, headshots and movies. And oh yeah, they use all of that. Yeah, it's it's yeah, a pretty it's, it's a very pattern. uncanny. And we also we didn't talk. Um, Eric von Stronheim, who plays the butler, was actually directed her first movie, and I. I don't know if they had a relationship together. I don't remember if she he's actually her first husband or not, but Gloria's been married six times. Like, that is, <laughs> that is just insanity. I think it was like four times before the movie came out. And mm-hmm. Cecil B. DeMille, director of Ten Commandments, shows up as himself 
and kills it. <laughs> like, he crushes it. He is one of the second best director cameo in a movie since Martin Scorsese and Taxi Driver. Like, he <laughs> he just sells, like, the sorrow and disappointment of his character so well. Like, he's totally, you know, you know, get me right and get me going cold. And <laughs> after the conversation, he's just so pissed mm -hmm. off about, like, what they it basically did to her is really heartbreaking to watch. And a very it clever twist because you expect him to be like this one-dimensional asshole, like, telling it to her straight, but no, he can't bring it to himself to, like, ruin her career once again and ruin her hopes and dreams again. So he kind of has to dance around the issue very uncomfortably. And it adds an interesting dynamic than what you'd expect from a scene like it. Yeah, it's just crazy how, like, meta Hollywood this is for Simon. And this probably was the most self-referential Hollywood film but until the player came out in the 90s. Easily. Where a bunch of actors basically just volunteered to have to have cameos in that film just to work with Robert Altman. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum took $1 paycheck to be in, uh, what was it, Nashville? Like, he just wanted to work with him so bad. Wow. So many actors loved working with him. But uh, Billy Wilder, too. Like, a lot of actors loved working with him, too. Not quite so much at first, but later on, like, so many people would mm -hmm. jump onto his project. And I think Marilyn Monroe was willing to take a pay cut, which hadn't happened before in any of her other movies. Um, did you guys have any issues with this one? I, I have. My only issues are if you take away, like, the dreamlike logic, some things don't really make any sense. Like, they search for weapons and knives in their apartment but they left the gun behind they didn't notice a gun <laughs> someone being suicidal you might want character. yeah you might <laughs> want to hide i i don't buy that those characters would hide the gun particularly well <laughs> maybe eric what? von Streinheim, but the fact that they didn't find that when searching for the house is like ah come on i'm pretty sure the cop has it on his finger doesn't he well no she has the gun at the end is like he she shows him the gun it's like here i'll do it i'll kill myself like she has a gun in her house oh that's what you, i that's see what, what i meant that's they what wouldn't I meant. have found it when they were i thought you meant at the end no 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 like when okay, the doctors yeah, yeah. were searching for and taking out any weapons that she could do to hurt herself they well, left a gun she said she went out and bought the gun isn't that the line but I just why would they and bought it yeah, no, I don't I know can't if they did gun that, checks but... back then. <laughs> I think yeah, I, I guess not. But they checked for other weapons. Like they mentioned, they checked for other weapons, but they didn't find a gun. I found out that was a little bit weird. And when he pulled into the laneway to hide from the other guys, it's like he was only like a few feet in front of you. <laughs> you should have noticed them pulling into the laneway. It wasn't like a quick getaway, or it wasn't dark out or anything. But yeah, that was probably just an issue of technical limitations. That's it, though. Just very minor nitpicks like that. What about you guys? Oh, I, mean, I didn't have any major nitpicks like off the top of my head, but I did want to acknowledge an elephant, or I mean, angel we have in the room. Uh, we have uh, Christian listening in, and I was wondering oh, if uh, he I'm wanted sorry, to Christian. say hi before we get into ratings. Yeah, I'm sorry, Christian. I forgot to bring you up earlier. Uh, if you want to mute yourself and uh, sub in with any thoughts you have on the discussion of the films, feel free to do so. No, I'm uh, I'm all right. It's been a while since I've uh, uh, seen either of those films, uh, but I mean, I, I do recall, uh, you know, seeing them uh, a number of years ago. Uh, they are quite good, but uh, yeah, no, I'm just enjoying. Uh, There's not really a lot that I would have to add to uh, uh, the discussion of uh, uh, these films. I agree with 
you know what's been said so far nice thank you for listening so, in well, appreciate yeah. enjoying yourself so yeah. far <laughs> pardon I, I said you enjoying the podcast so far oh yes i am yeah thank absolutely you. awesome thank you man yeah thank you again for listening in and what would you guys rate sunset boulevard out of 10 i'm yeah. gonna give it a nine yeah daryl like i can't i can't explain i feel like i haven't been the, <laughs> that like informational this episode just because I, all i'm doing is just you know sucking the dick of this film but oh, like, no no that's this fine is a, this is a 10 for me man like something happened wow. in this rewatch like i like i don't know maybe i've just written enough films myself now that like so much of the humor hit and so much of the perspectives just were very clear to me whereas they just may not have been back when i first came across it and I, I've never really rewatched it too much. So this was a, a really fun revisiting and like it's it's just a straight up ten out of ten. Like this I would put it on the masterpiece shelf. Like I, I really love this film. Oh yeah. I mean I was just reading how this is one of the very few films that got nominated for all, all the major Oscars, best picture, best actor, best editing and all this. And this is one that definitely like deserved the ones that it did win. Um and it just gets better with age which very few films do like the, the more you look into it the more fascinating it is and very few films have that kind of staying power mm -hmm. i'm going to split the diff between uh both of your guys score i'm going to give it the inverse of the sex number i'm going to give it a 9.6 yeah Ooh, Sonic, nice. uh yeah. i'm with you daryl this is also one of my favorite films it's just one film one episode after another we've just talked about a film for my top 25 it's it does get better with age. It is a very interesting and engaging movie on all fronts, and all the technical aspects are great. The set design is very convincing and tells a lot about the character. The music is great. The use of fades is very effective, and that's the dreamlike quality. It's just a perfect example of how a meta-narrative is done right. It doesn't take away from the movie. It doesn't just poke fun at how bad it is. It just adds to the experience and adds to the themes it's exploring so well. Uh, you just won one any other way, man. And I'm giving this, yeah, 9.6 out of 10. I'm with Devin on the score. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I absolutely love meta-narratives, and this is a golden standard example of how to exactly. really pull off a meta-narrative well, where it starts off in a realistic space, but then gets surreal, but in a way that really resonates and really hits and really makes a point, where I feel like a lot of films that kind of go into that meta-surreal territory almost use it as a crutch. Um and it could be a self-criticism because I've always attempted kind of that space because I find it so fascinating. But um, who cares what's literally happening when I have this cool-looking shot? And exactly. You can, you can interpret it different ways. You know, like there's a lot of films that kind of have that kind of crux where this film feels very thoughtful and, you know, the uh, the, the, the meta kind of stuff with uh, Hollywood and all the business that's been happening there, it's all there. And, yeah. yeah. Speaking Perfect of example, uh, actresses' careers kind of that didn't last very long, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> we've got The Last Seduction uh, with our last film. Uh, I would like to introduce this one, if that's all right with you guys. Um, spoiler alert, this one was a little more recent, 1994. It's a neo-noir directed by John Dahl. Uh, it was supposedly originally made for straight to HBO before making its way to feeders, which... Apparently is the main reason why Linda Fiorentino, apologize if I butchered that pronunciation, 
yeah, th that was the reason she wasn't nominated for Best Actress that year at the Oscars. Because, man, uh, <laughs> her back must hurt from carrying this movie. Holy shit. Uh, she plays a demented woman named Bridget, who ends up stealing a big pile of drug money from her husband, played by Bill Pullman, and runs off to hide in a small remote and uh, slightly sexist uh, town in the middle of nowhere. And that's just when she happens to meet the director of Battleship, uh, I mean Mike Swale, who's just thick enough and desperate enough to be persuaded into falling in love with Bridget, and eventually making an attempt on her husband's life as well. You're probably thinking, wow, that just sounds like a generic noir thriller. That just sounds like double indemnity again. But what what makes this one stand out, you know, is that this time around it takes place from the femme fatale's perspective, solely from her perspective. In this case, Bridget's perspective. And despite its barrier of entry into the Oscars, and it didn't make that much money. It only had a 2.5 million dollar budget. I think it made five million at most. Uh, it was still a huge hit with critics and kind of managed to get a bit of a cult following throughout the years, despite how hard it is to kind of find and, you know, watch on its own. Not a lot of Blu-rays out, not a lot of trivia out for this film. Uh, but, you know, personally, I, I can't say I hated the movie by any means, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a bit disappointed. But, uh, you know, that being said, I'd like to hear what you guys think. Uh, starting with the guests, uh, what do you, Daryl and Jamar, think of this very sexy movie? So very sexy. sexy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Linda, that, man. That sums it up. <laughs> Are you going first, Daryl? Yeah, I'll, I'll do a quick one first. Uh, I think it the probably the worst thing about this is that we have to compare it to two of Billy Wilder's greatest films um, yeah uh, the good thing hybrid. about it is it's it's kind of like a hybrid of both like i feel like they used a big template for both these like for both the films we've talked about are, are definitely in the dna of this film to say the least let alone like the borderline double indemnity remake at points from a from a different perspective um interesting about the hbo i did not know about that that makes a whole lot of sense because i just kept saying to jamar like man there's a lot of sex scenes in here um yeah, yeah i think that <laughs> drags the pace a little for me but uh yeah yeah feel free jamar um i loved all the performances i really i really liked bridget's character wendy um, and I, I loved how she depicted all of the, the power dynamics and how like very, I think it's like within the first 10 scenes of the movie, it, she flips everything on its head and it's really cool to follow her as opposed to following a hard boiled detective trying to solve a murder or having been part of a murder. She's in the process of committing crimes. So you're just following her and her story and seeing where she goes with it all. Um, I was very surprised later on uh, to find that she was just as nutty as she turned out to be. But Really? Like the actress or her uh, character? The character. Yeah. Really? But, I didn't think they were being around the bush for that because very early on she does, you, you can just tell like there's, you know, she's kind of grew up in a life of crime and 
the whole appeal of the film, like even the marketing is just like, yeah, she's a bad girl. Yes, you're watching the bad guy in this movie, but mm. it's just interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I think. Yeah, I, I yeah. think her performance definitely carries this film, and she's incredible in every single scene that she's in. Oh yeah. You can tell that it's a made-for-TV movie, even though it's like HBO and there's a a level of prestige with the uh, 11.95 whatever price they were charging people to subscribe to their uh, channel back then, um, which Matt Hedman was not very happy about. Um, that's all a different story. But um, no, it's it's interesting to see kind of how the noir genre plays in this TV format because this is almost like the second uh, decade where noir became relevant again. Like there was that resurgence of neo noir in um, the 70s, which kind of bled into the 80s with neon noir and that kind of giving birth to cyberpunk. And then this is like the 90s kind of um, rehashing it again. and But more sexy. Now, oh, yeah. Now, now now we have to inject uh, extra sex and make the uh, well, reverse the rules around. Well, it, it does still play very much into those same kind of familiar tropes, but it does take it from a different kind of perspective. I mean, it it does feel like um, it is kind of reflecting on the the Hayes Code in that way. Like, okay, what if we do one of the old school noirs, but we can actually show sex and we can actually show the 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 gritty murder aspects of yeah. it and whatnot. And like at the time, of course, you would you be pitched that and like, oh yeah, that's that's the perfect thing to put on. But like, I don't know, man. To me. It ruins the the mystery and mystique of it all. I a hundred percent agree. I a hundred percent agree. Yeah, and, and, I like and that it's it was very leveled, much in the light. Right? Oh, sorry. It's very much in the lighting too. Like there isn't much uh, contrast to the light, except for like maybe the night scenes. But the lighting was just very kind of it's so bland. flat. Otherwise, like it's very it's very much a, a TV movie type of set. The way that they lit it doesn't feel like a noir. It feels like a kind of contemporary. Nothing feels lived in. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's points, right? Like they, I kept saying to Jamar, like I could cut like 20 minutes off this film and it'd be fantastic because there's certain shots. Like I remember of all the nudity or whatever in it. I love the one where it kind of goes down her body, but it's like focused on like the the like creases of her or like you know the curves of it, and it's not necessarily like a a nudity shot, but it it really is kind of artsy in a way. And they do a couple of good things like that, but then like yeah. It is. It is very focused on yeah. um, on showing the nudity. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots of ass. Lots of ass yeah. in this movie. They should have called it the ass seduction. But uh, that's my <laughs> biggest issue of the movie is just how flat and boring it looks. And you could say, well, it was made straight to TV. It was made for low budget. But I don't know. Halloween and Tetsuo the Iron Man movies like that prove that even if you have dirt cheap, you know, budgets, Tetsuo was literally made with a bunch of garbage. If you shoot it in an interesting way and cut it together in an interesting way and light it in an interesting way, you could still make a visually compelling experience, you know, despite your, you know, budget limitations. But it, it feels like they just didn't even try in that regard. And that's well, such a shame because that's what makes, like, these noir films work so well, even now, is that style mixed with substance. But here it's just, it felt like I was watching an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> like, everything just felt so flat and evenly lit and boringly shot 
So you know, now, that, that, now that you mention it, I could totally hear someone like cutting in the Seinfeld theme, like for like the ad breaks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that'd be that that that'd be. And actually, I was going to comment on like the music that they. One thing that kind of makes this film feel a little flat, and what would have made it a lot more interesting, is if they weren't using the same kind of jazzy motif all the yeah, time. Yeah, like it's mm -hmm. fine at first, but then it just kind of undercuts or undersells. The, the the twisty plot like she gets away uh with murder essentially like you know spoilers for the ending she kills her husband bill pullman by you know spraying a whole can of mace down his neck and that's kind of a you know, badass way to way, uh, way to go and she gets away with it but like the music is just this kind of like do 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 yeah it's just this kind of like yeah it's kind of meandering jazz piece where you know if if David Lynch was doing this, it would have a completely different feel. And it's funny to be see, differently acted by too, contrast, though. what he was doing at the time with like Lost Highway and Twin Peaks, like how he was kind of taking these noir tropes and really making them even darker. Where this kind of makes it a little more lighthearted and TV friendly in a weird way, while also um, not abiding by the Hayes Code and hey, we can get away with nudity now. It, but that's kind of missing the yeah. point of what made noir so interesting in Mystique. Not to say that doesn't add to it, but the way that they do it is just kind of, you know, flatly lit where, you know, it, it doesn't have that same kind of mystique to it. Although, again, I think her character is what holds this film together. It's I'd like she's the rug that ties the room together, but the room is kind of bare bones and there's no walls. That's, wow, that is a, fantastic way of putting that actually that's exactly how i feel and about the music it, what it felt like to me was it felt like they paid the guy to do like two songs but for whatever reason he couldn't stick around to do any more music or they couldn't afford any more songs so it's just like you know mm -hmm. what we gotta make the most out of this we paid a lot of money for that music we gotta just keep pointing it in they use it so often like so many scenes that suspense and tension is just ruined and when it does it at the end of the movie with the climax, it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is a, yeah. a really dark and suspenseful scene. And that would have been great. That's what I was expecting. It's like, okay, they're using this light-hearted music throughout the whole movie, but this is it. Like, they're going to change the music. They're going to change the tone or use no music at all. But then they just use the same music again. It's like, I get that the director pitched this as a dark comedy, but... I this is the moment where we start taking it seriously. This is where the dark is leaning into it. I need a different song to play for the scene. And my biggest issue of the film, I think altogether, is it has that writing problem. You know, when like bad detective movies, they try to make the detective look smart by having them point out like an obvious <laughs> piece of evidence at the crime scene that every other cop or every other investigator should have noticed. This is basically the same movie, but with a femme fatale trying. Like, the movie is so insistent that, like, oh, this girl is so clever. She's so smart and addictive, and she's outsmarting all of these men. But when you write every other character around her to be these complete oblivious morons, it's not really much of an accomplishment to outsmart them. I'm not really buying that she's a smart character if everyone else around her is just an idiot. It's like, well, she's just slightly less stupid. That's all you're really conveying with the character. And it's such a lazy, contrived way to kind of make a character seem smart and clever without actually earning it. And it kept driving me nuts. Yeah, no, definitely same here, man. Mm. Especially when you have, like, Bill Pullman and 
I even fucking Agent Shrouder made a, a little cameo in this. Yeah, um, yeah. Dean Norris, man. I, I'm like, I, I love the surprise little roles. Dean Norris in this, um, and like I was saying earlier, Bill Pullman. It's just funny to see going back and that they were all in this film, and then seeing where they split off. Where, uh, you know, later you know Dean Norris for being in Breaking Bad. Uh, Bill Pullman shows up in Lost Highway, and then. Uh, Linda ends up in Men in Black. <laughs> and it's just it's just funny to see how their careers kind of split in those three different directions yeah. uh, mm-hmm. from this film. Yeah, it definitely does feel like the it originally started as some kind of like modern double indemnity script because there is this really convoluted way of ending up at the same like well, let's pull double indemnity insurance fraud, and I was like, "That's a little too on the nose for me." A, l- a little um, on the. I I think I screen cap that too. I'll see if I can dig it up, but I'm like, yeah, yeah that's you're, you're you're name dropping the wrong movie. Yeah, exactly. which is fine if you just call this double indemnity and it is a dark new take on it and it, like you know double um, indemnity part two <laughs> fucking body heat yeah. which was a soft um, remake of double indemnity never brings up double indemnity <laughs> oh no d- d- double indemnity part two double dipped double <laughs> <laughs> uh speaking of double dicked uh i i i'm sorry for ranting but i just wanted to go on a quick rant about the end and uh i would like to compare oh the ending of this movie to a scene in Gone Girl because in both stories they're trying to pin a sexual assault on the last guy standing in the scene. How do these two girls deal with it? So Rosamund Pike's character, spoiler for Gone Girl, uh, approaches it in a much smarter way. She, you know, creates this story through like camera footage around the house that, you know, she dips like her panties in wine and makes it look like she's, you know, got blood in her uh, cooch, so to speak, and, you know, as soon as he comes home, like, she has sex with him, but the thing is, she kills him. She kills him and while being fucked, so he could be like, oh, well, he sexually assaulted me, um, you know, I, but, you know, I slit his throat, I had to defend myself, you know, there's no witness to say otherwise. The Linda's master plan for that in The Last Seduction is... To give him Vietnam flashbacks <laughs> of his traumatic past, and while she's you know get, having sex with him, you know as you do, she calls the police right next to him, and mentions and what's happening, notice. and he doesn't notice. I'm like, he could harm you. He could run away. He could stop what he's doing and leave. Like you have to do something with him. Like, finish, I understand finishing because, you know, apparently he's hung like a horse, but finish, knock him out, tie him up, kill him, something, anything, but if you let him leave, like, he can testify against you, like, that's evidence against you, and again, like, that was your master plan, that was everything the film was building up to, (laughs) just calling the cops right next to him, (laughs) pulling a really dumb move, like, this is the clever smart character that's been building up a scheme throughout the entire movie I, it pissed me off again i know i'm not supposed to take it super seriously but some convincing behavior would be nice i, I felt that also... i almost laughed you know, <laughs> without like conveniently that all worked out yeah i, I know. know and maybe that was the yeah. point but it just felt unsatisfying to me i don't know they could have, have made not. it funny while making it more satisfying you know there are ways you can pull that off edgar wright does it all the time in his films 
for example. Um, oh, yeah. But uh, there are things I do appreciate about it. Like you said, like all the performances are solid. Linda Fiorentino is just fantastic. Like she's... Shame made me question my sexuality. This movie made me straight again. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I'm sorry to have to say that. Uh, but, you know, genuinely fantastic performance. Should have been nominated for an Oscar. There are funny scenes in it. Like, for a while, the tone was kind of working for me when he's like, I'm hung like a horse, and she just very casually jerks him off in the bar. He's like, what the fuck? Wait, what are you doing? Well, she, 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 she was just trying to uh, confirm his claim, looking for some horse-like attributes. Yeah, I know. Like, that was, that was really thought, funny. Which I thought was a funny way to, to, to word it. Yeah, like, and... that was funny. And there was some clever, like, use of set design, at least. Like, it's very blandly shot and very blandly presented overall, but... I don't know, like, the idea of her apartment being empty outside of, like, the bare essentials, like a lamp and a bed, is, like, yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, like, femme fatale meta-commentary. I get it. And it it has, like, a great beginning. I think the beginning of the film is really good and really does, like, suck you into this, like, darkly comedic and bizarre world. Bill Pullman, <laughs> begging for mercy, is just really funny, and now the guards are like, uh... Uh, okay, uh, we're, we're just gonna give you the money, you know? <laughs> we're not really gonna shoot you or anything, but I don't know. All of that is just buried under a bland pile of stupidity. Like, I really want to like this film more than I did, but I just I, I well, couldn't get with it. I, I'm wondering what her character motivation was in the end. Does he just, does she just like besting people? She just that's likes... her way of having fun? Well, she wants like, money and independence. It. I, it's my guess. Like, is there more to that that I was missing? I'm just curious. Well, I don't know. I think she just wanted independence. Like, yeah, I'm a bad bitch. <laughs> you know, I don't need no man or anything along those lines. I don't know. Yeah, that wasn't really properly conveyed. I think it's What's just because it? he hit her. Like, they keep oh, well, leading into that, like, idea. <laughs> and I don't know, like, it at maybe first it's it was. It. At first it was because, you know, he, he slapped her. And I, I really liked that aspect that, like, oh, you're going to steal all this money and expect that like we stick together but if you treat me like that then yeah, fine you. i'll take yeah. the money and be on my own and i thought that was great motivation for the first half of the movie and then that whole the whole double indemnity side plot like it just was so unnecessary to me that they needed to make her that wild and that greed hungry like i guess that is part of her character but she had so much money she she killed the pi like what else did she need at that point yeah it, she's almost like yeah. cartoonishly maniacal in this where it's yeah like, yeah it it's kind like, of ruins the fun of a character like that this is the most non-existent mustache i've seen on a woman <laughs> yeah you know? and i you know part of me does kind of like that where i don't know if you've seen this awful movie called uh um, I care a lot with Roseman Pike, but basically it's like, uh, it shows like a similar character, but it's like, oh, but she had a rough childhood. She she had a hard life, and this really dumb attempts to get you to sympathize with the character. But I can at least appreciate where it's like they they never go that route with her. Mm -hmm. Like they kind of leave it up to the audience to take away from the character. But it's like you said, I think they went a little too far <laughs> to the point where mm -hmm. I was just kind of confused by her motivations at the end. It's like, I don't need, like, any soft so stories yeah. or any, 
yeah, they build her up so hard and it's such like an unsatisfying climax. So it's like more no, but that's why, right? Because they're they're building this one layer which is the whole big subplot, which is like, oh, you know, a smart femme fatale would create this big plot. Mm. But then the twist I quite enjoyed was when the two guys just have a moment of holy shit, we're getting fucked over here. Yeah. And that completely changes the dynamic. Then what they do is try and kind of raise her to a level beyond any level we've had yet, which is just like straight murder, not just convincing others, like straight murder and then the frame rape. And like that's where things start to get weird because the only way she's still a smart character is if you're telling me that by going down and talking to Trish, she was in enough belief that by just bringing up the name, she would be able to somehow twist that into him raping her when he hasn't shown any qualities like that yet yeah. so like that's the moment where things start not fitting because you're trying mm -hmm. to make a character too smart so that uh, unless it's her acting completely in the spur of the moment which could make sense but then i don't know it's then, a big risk to take yeah that's yeah, it, it right like what happens if this fails i think there's too many what ifs and it's, yeah. it doesn't make you smart it just makes you uh, I don't know, like reactionary, which is extremely lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Like she's just extremely lucky in this movie when she's in the car with the hitman and she's like, "Oh, I hear, you know, black guys have these big dicks, and I always want to see your dick, and it somehow works." It's like, what? Like, yeah. It, what, is this completely off him funny? wanting to take his dick out. Yeah, and it's kind like, of funny, I guess. But at that point, I just lost my patience. It's like I just need one smart character, just one smart character. The, one I'll give character her that. to compete with. I feel like if it wasn't the dick again, I might have been more down because yeah. if it were some more like creative way to get him to take off yeah. his seatbelt, exactly. maybe I would have been down because I like that whole moment that, you know, I'll crash my own car to get this done. Like I dig that, but the dick thing soured the moment for me. This movie was just I'm, so sexually weird. It also I, didn't know like what down. it wanted to be. Like he said, it's a dark comedy, but I don't know. Like <laughs> it feels I like never it's get just taking. You this. mentioned that a couple times. I never get. It, some scenes are like silly really. enough that it could be interpreted that way, but there are other scenes that are so serious, and the twist is kind yeah. of horrifying. As like, okay, like either pick a more consistent tone or pick better times to balance between the tones. And they couldn't really pick either for this movie. And yeah, mm. sorry, Stephen, if you're listening to this, um, your waifu Linda couldn't save the movie. Or just make softcore porn if that's your goal. Like yeah, <laughs> I don't I, know how else I, to put it. Yeah, like exactly, it's like most of the way there already. I mean, yeah, <laughs> just but just I, I I just had to share this screenshot talking about like that whole car scene. Dad getting his dad. He says the forty in my fuck ain't gonna work either. I I just I like that line. Yeah. Which again, he was smarter than her in those moments, yeah, and then is like, exactly. you know what? I think I will. Yeah, it's like, I, I was so excited because no. I was like, wow, a clever character. She actually has to own smart. Like, I'm excited to see how it plays out. And it's like, oh, he's just gonna whip his dick out because all men are really stupid and all men are really horny and assholes. Well, and, you know, we, on. we only have enough blood for one head or the other, and once it's once it trickles down, <laughs> you know, all thoughts go. That, that, that's that's the joke everyone makes, right? So, I, I guess so. That, but, that, that's that's the movie logic. We only have enough blood for one or the other, so. Yeah, but that's that's a shit post. You know, that's not something I want in my movie, but yeah, I don't really have much else to add for this one. Just kind of underwhelming, and yeah, the performances are great, and there's some entertain bits in it and it starts well but 
it just kind of falls apart at the seams and the more it went along the more it just tested my patience i was going to give it a 6 out of 10 but uh, i'm gonna go lower 5.5 out of 10 i just Ooh. i couldn't get with this movie man linda you tried your best but you couldn't save it you did definitely deserve that oscar though you really should have been nominated Ah, I don't know about an Oscar nom for. No, for, I, yeah. well, I, I. She should. I, I think she definitely deserves uh, more notoriety for it. Um, although I, I was looking up her uh, Wikipedia a little uh, while ago, just reading up on her career. Like, what else has she been in? Because I know her from Men in Black and a couple other things, but, um, she didn't have. Uh, well, she, she she did some like TV movies after this, but apparently she was caught up in some light scandal with a boyfriend that was uh, formerly in the FBI. And there was some kind of legal trouble there. She she might be in jail. It's very vague about how it's written, but it's it's almost like her real life uh, person parallels her character, um, oh, which man. I find interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is interesting. But um, yeah, I I just posted some screenshots that I found really funny. Um, nice, uh... out of context. Uh yeah, so we got like the screenshot of uh, hey, it's me, designated fuckboy on the voicemail and uh. You know, the double indemnity, <laughs> very subtle <laughs> tighter title card that shows up later in the movie. And yeah, I don't know. What would you guys rate this out of 10? I think you know my rating is, Ian. Yeah, <laughs> 6.9. Yeah. You got it. Daryl, Jamar, what about you guys? cut out there great thoughts <laughs> daryl i think you cut out if you can hear me oh sorry that would make sense uh yeah no uh i'm going six nine two nice jamar i'm gonna go 6.5 good don't don't <laughs> suffer to the juvenile humor i appreciate that yeah it's my joke anyway <laughs> <laughs> well thank know, you guys so much for joining tonight uh uh, special thanks. Was it Chris who's listening in? I apologize. I'm terrible with names. Christian. 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 Thank you so much for listening in. Daryl and Jamar, you were fantastic guests. I'm sorry if I ranted a little bit. I'm very passionate about this genre, but thank you so much for tagging along. Your insights were great. As usual, Daryl and Jamar, you were a fantastic guest. Thank you so much. No, thank Pleasure you. to be here. Oh, pleasure to have you. Devin, what, uh, what crazy episode recommendation concoction do you have for us next week oh god so assuming all things go to plan uh this time um we have uh matt damon sorry not matt damon uh fresh stink or nathan uh shapiro uh coming up on our podcast next week to do a uh clown episode because uh he is actually a uh someone that went to clown school and this uh this this goes way back to an episode we did on the Cold War, of all things. And we were talking about the death of Stalin, and he was a, a new person on our server uh, back then, and he uh, gave us some very surprising insights to how the death of Stalin could be read as a you know, a movie about clowning. And that just fascinated me, so I wanted to look at that uh, genre uh, more seriously, um, even though I hate clowns. But this is uh, me... tackling that no this is me tackling that phobia head on just to see what the fascination is or what the um, philosophy is behind it that's the whole idea kind of behind this but um the films that we're looking at to uh examine the art of clowning uh, under more serious lens are uh joker 
the king of comedy and wrinkles the clown which is a oh, documentary i forgot oh. we were talking about the king of comedy oh man yeah, wrinkles yes. the clown Ori originally i pitched <laughs> it um and and i pitched it almost as a joke like more than a year ago um say next year for episode 69 which didn't end up happening for that but i I'm happy with where episode 69 ended up being anyway. Uh, originally, I wanted to do The Day the Clown Cried um, and Jackass as well as Joker. But um, you obviously can't watch The Day the Clown Cried, but you can talk about how why you can't watch it. It's about a clown that uh, tries to tear up kids during uh, the Holocaust, which was never released by the filmmaker because he thought, this is the worst thing I've ever made, and I don't I want any uh, mortal eyes to ever no see kidding. it while I'm alive. Definitely not that bad, but yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. should be an interesting discussion. Hopefully Can't we wait, hear man. back from uh, from uh, Mr. Stink uh, by then, and uh, we'll ha finally get this clown episode checked off the list. Nice. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening in again, and uh, is it Thursday yet? Have a great night, guys. See you later.